Truth News Network. In a world where up is down and sideways is a way of life, when the truth one moment is a lie the next, and everything is your fault, you need hope. You need clarity. You need TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Well, here we are today. And I got to be honest with you, I don't care what it is. I don't care why, when, how bad it is. I'm not responsible for it. I take no accountability for anything bad that happens to anybody. How? Why? Am I doing that or saying that? Well, it's simply because that's the way our leaders in D.C. handle the questions when people legitimately ask questions about why is this happening or why is this not happening? You know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, we all grew up through a period of our lives where we didn't want to take accountability for anything. Maybe you went through yours when you were young. Maybe you're still going through it today. Many of us are. But at some point, we're supposed to learn through experiences that the things for which we did or were done at our orders, we've got to take accountability for it all. You know what's really sad about the nation in which we live? Largely, and I mean far more than 50% of the time, those that are in power politically across this nation, they only step up to be accountable for those things that work out good. Very few times do we see leaders step up onto a podium or a platform in front of a television camera or a microphone and say, you know what? That was my fault. I take total accountability for it. Now, this president, to his credit, Throughout his campaign and even through the early months of his presidency, he was very quick to say, the buck stops with me. But then what did he do? Did he weigh into the what we should have done narrative? Never. Never. Here's what he basically said. We're just going to make it okay. We're going to make it okay. In other words, what he was telling the American people, which is the buck stops with me, It was what he knew he needed to say. But it's one thing to say that. It's a second thing to be accountable for the actions that you made or maybe the actions you did not make that you should have. And there are a lot of consequences. Look around our nation today. Look around our nation this week. Look at the occurrences across our nation in the last year, almost a year, since last January. Uh, specifically January 20th. Look at all of the things that have happened and the equal number of things that have not happened that should have. Where's the accountability for it? Congress passes these laws. Yeah, Yeah, these are the things that the president, the new president, Joe Biden, he presented, he pitched it. He never wrote a piece of legislation. Never did. Never did it throughout his 50-year career in D.C., Others always did that for him, but he's one of those idea guys. He comes up with ideas. Maybe he gets them genuinely from his heart. Maybe someone else passes them along to him for consideration. But when it comes to decision time, he relies on others 
to create and implement the things that he's talking about. And he trusts these other people that the end product is going to be exactly what he thought it was going to be. I got to be honest with you folks. If the stuff that Joe Biden is pushing on the White House actually came from his heart, we're in deep trouble because our president, his heart obviously is not in the right place. He told us all through his campaign, not just this one, but all the other ones before that, all those campaigns when he ran for election the first time to the U.S. Senate and subsequent follow-up elections for him to continue to hold those positions in every one of those campaigns. And then campaigning with Barack Obama two different terms as his vice president, Biden was very quick to remind us all that he will take accountability for everything that comes across his plate. But when it comes to accountability time, Joe's not sitting at the plate at the table where the plate holds the wrong, the bad decisions and choices. He's not the only one in D.C. that adopted that philosophy long ago. We have 535 members in our United States Congress, 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate, I don't know the exact number. Why? Because I don't know people's hearts. I don't know what's in their minds. I don't know what they think. Sometimes we get told that. But golly, folks, in large part now, we can't believe anything we're told by some of these leaders. The toughest thing for us to do is to discern which leaders we should listen to and which ones we should ignore. And the very fact that I even just said that, and I said it because we need to understand that, is maybe the greatest travesty of this century so far. Our government has let us down. Our leaders have let us down. And to a person, everyone that has run for Congress, everyone that has run for president and vice president, every one of them have each told us promised us and has sworn an oath to defend the United States Constitution, to support and enforce the rule of law, all of those things on which our nation was founded. That's the scariest thing of all. We're being governed by a bunch of selfish people that have a bunch of agendas. And sadly, I can say this almost with 100% assurity, what their agendas are don't line up with the agendas, the wishes, the hopes of the majority of the American people. Day before Thanksgiving, I shouldn't have started the show on a negative point, but I just wanted to point out a few things before we wade into the details today. Yeah, it's Thanksgiving week, Thanksgiving Day tomorrow. Toward the end of the show, we'll we'll talk about Thanksgiving Day. We'll talk about this season. I've got a lot of personal opinions and feelings and thoughts about it, so stick around for that. In the meantime, where are we going today? We're going to hear from our energy secretary, former governor, Jennifer Granholm. She um, took to the podium yesterday discussing our energy issues. I think everybody will agree we're having some serious ones right now. We're also going to hear from... My favorite White House correspondent, spokesperson, 
That would be Jen Psaki. She's going to lay some wisdom on us. And then we're going to go back to Waukesha, Wisconsin. Believe it or not, with six people dead, 62 injured now, an eight-year-old boy was the sixth person to die as a result of that horror show on Sunday in Waukesha. Um, In the middle of all of that, some new news came out yesterday. That is shocking. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. We've got a we've got a live story coming from a TV station in Wisconsin. What else? So much more to, to discuss. We're going to let the president himself tell you exactly what's going on in the U.S. economy and why it's all going on and what he's going to do about it. He won't mention what he has not done about it. <laughs> I think that's all very obvious now. But he's going to talk to us about what his plans are and where we are in the scheme of deciding and determining the status of our economy. So it's going to be a big day. want you to be a part of it. If you're listening, thank you so much for being here. If you want to chime in, feel free to do so. Ah, It's a holiday season. Give us a call if you want to chat, make a suggestion or comment. Toll free, 1-866-372. Truth. That's 1-866-378-7884. So let's get started. Everybody knows we have this horrible supply chain problem. Call it a snarl, call it a roadblock, call it a debacle, whatever you want to call it, but it's the real deal. And everybody keeps waiting for the Biden administration with that brilliant, knowledgeable, operational guy, Pete Buttigieg, is over all of our transportation, our infrastructure, the projects that need to be handled, initiated, and making sure everything in that particular sector of our society is rolling right along. He's the guy that should have spearheaded fixing this supply chain snarl. But he opted out. He and his partner adopted a baby, and so... The secretary took a couple of months off. Didn't tell any of us. We just assumed he was on the job getting it done. He was working hard on this supply chain snarl. Didn't happen. And we still have a bad supply chain snarl. So 15 different Republican governors have taken this task on themselves. This group is led by Tennessee Governor Bill Lee. What they have done in unison is launch a program called Operation Open Road. It's an initiative that seeks to ease the supply chain crunch, and they're going to use a host of state and federal measures, including calling on the Biden folks to remove burdensome regulations on the trucking industry and to suspend President Biden's vaccine mandate for private employers. Governor Lee announced the start of the operation yesterday, well, actually, day before yesterday, the same day he signed an executive order deregulating critical trucking functions in his state, Tennessee. He said this, Republican governors across the country have committed to doing everything we can to solve a growing supply chain crisis. And it's resulted, this crisis, in back-up ports and empty shelves. We call on the Biden administration to join us in Operation Open Road by suspending burdensome regulations on the trucking industry 
therefore ensuring small businesses and American consumers have access to the goods they need this holiday season. Makes common sense, doesn't it? Well, their initiative comes as this supply chain crisis, it continues to roll on, folks. It raises the rate of inflation to a three-decade high, prompting warnings of possible product shortages as we head into this busy holiday shopping season. Remember this, Black Friday, day after tomorrow. At the federal level, Operation Open Road calls for the Biden administration to suspend some federal regulations that require commercial driver's license holders to be 21 years old and lower the age to 18. It also takes aim at the vaccine or test mandate for private employers, calling on Biden to suspend the burdensome federal mandate for COVID-19 vaxes for all private employees, specifically for the trucking and transportation industry. So the driver shortages are not further exacerbated by additional barrier to employment. A number of trucking industry insiders have stepped forward and are saying that the private employer vaccine mandate could lead to a major trucking disruption. And this at a time when the American Trucking Association is estimated there's already a driver shortage of 80,000 drivers. So one expert from MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, told D.C. lawmakers at a recent congressional hearing that holdups at pickup and delivery points at these ports around the nation are causing a chronic underutilization problem that's affecting U.S. long-haul drivers, the ones that load up at the ports and they just take off and drive to points all over North America. And that's leading to 40% of trucking capacity being left on the table every day. I mean, one day is bad enough, but think about it every day. 40% of our trucking capacity sitting in a parking lot. David Carell is a research scientist at MIT, and he blamed conventions for scheduling and processing around pickup and delivery appointments for drastically reducing the amount of time truck drivers actually spend driving. He estimating that adding just 18 minutes of driving time on average to each of the country's 1.8 million truck drivers every day could be enough to overcome what many of us feel is a driver shortage. Lee, in an open letter announcing the launch of Operation Open Roads, touched on the MIT estimate. If we can get government out of the way, Governor Lee said, our trucking industry can safely do what it does best. Move. In the spirit of removing regulatory barriers, the governors, these 17 governors, have called on the Biden administration to review and revise any federal policies that deter use or domestic manufacturing of essential transportation equipment. What is that? Well, it includes containers, trucks, and tractor trailers. Governor Lee and other governors also took aim more broadly at the Biden administration's big-ticket spending plans, arguing that the plans would fuel inflation, make it even higher. Finally, we call on President Biden to halt attempts to raise taxes, spend trillions more in taxpayer dollars, and grow the debt, all of which will cripple the American economy 
and spur inflation causing sky-high consumer prices for American families. You know what's interesting, most interesting about this whole thing? Here we are, almost a year into a Biden administration. We had supply chain issues when Biden took office. Jen Psaki told us all in that first White House press meeting where it became obvious that we had a really bad supply chain problem. And she said, and I'm not quoting her, I'm paraphrasing what she said, we've been working on the supply chain issue since even before we took office. That would mean, folks, sometime in January of this year, 11 months ago, 11 months ago, according to Jen Psaki, they started working on this supply chain issue. Now, two things come from that. If what she said is true, and I have my sincere doubts, but if it is true, what that means is this administration, with all of the brilliant brain surgeon category people in the cabinet, in the transportation department, in the energy department, in the labor department, everybody along with Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris sitting around a table. They've been doing it every day for 11 months, and they have not fixed one part of the supply chain issue, nor have they given us any explanation of a plan of any kind. And you know why that is? Let me tell you this. I'll today, I'll be a seer, a soothsayer, okay? I'm going to read the tea leaves for you. It's because they don't have a plan. One hasn't been created. It was expected that the way things move in this capitalist economy, that that would overtake the problem, the supply chain problem, and everything would be okay, and then they could take credit for fixing it. They haven't fixed it. It's broken, but even worse, there's no plan from this administration to fix it. So in the context and the shadows of that, I thought it would be appropriate for you to hear from our president, and he's instructing in what you're about to hear, you and me, on how we need to view our economy, what's going on. And then he tells us, here's what's really happening on my watch. Here's President Biden. As they do, I want to take a moment to talk about the economy, both the progress we made and the challenges we remain and we have to face. We made historic progress over the last 10 months. Wages are rising. Disposable income is up. More people are starting small businesses than ever before. And our economy has created a record 5.6 million jobs since I became president on January 20th. I want to stop right there. I want to correct the president. I want to correct the president. He has not created 5.6 million jobs. Those jobs were occupied by American workers before the pandemic lockdowns. And then his continued on his watch to pitch deals to Congress to give Americans incentive to not go back to work. Hey, especially in um, the grocery, restaurant, entertainment industry where so many blue-collared workers are out there and are the backbone of much of what we do in the retail industry across the U.S. So those people at their uh, compensation level, the Biden administration on Nancy Pelosi's watch and Chuck Schumer, they created this thing where 
The federal government's going to incentivize these workers to stay at home, sit on their butts, and not go back to work. In many cases, they make more money from these federal unemployment insurance stipends that the Biden administration adds on top of the state unemployment benefits these workers have already received. Why would anybody want to go to work when they can sit at home or do whatever they want to do and get paid the same amount of money or in some cases even more? It's funny that Biden, when this all first started and his talking point was, this administration has created more new jobs in the first six months, nine months, ten months than any other administration in history. Did you notice he just dropped part of what he'd been claiming for months? He didn't say this administration, my administration created more new jobs. He said created jobs. So he didn't correct himself. What he did was he changed one word and he just assumes that we all as Americans, because we're so dumb, especially conservatives in America, that we'll just miss that. Nobody caught that. And now he can't be accused of lying about that number anymore because he took out one word. (laughs) The inference still is, I'm the guy. I did it. Y'all need to thank me. He continued, did President Biden. There's a lot we can be proud of and a lot we can build on for the future. But we still face challenges in our economy, challenges in our supply chain, which has sparked concern about shortages and contributed to higher prices. Moms and dads are worried, asking, will there be enough food we can afford to buy for the holidays? Will we be able to get Christmas presents to the kids on time? And if so, will they cost me an arm and a leg? The price of gasoline has reached record levels recently in Europe and in Asia, the highest it's been in years. Of course, it's always painful when gas prices, gas prices spike. Today, the price of gas in America, on average, is $3.40 a gallon. In California, it's much higher. The big part of the, of the reason Americans are facing high gas prices is because oil-producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet the demand. Now, you just heard the perfect example of Biden deflect responsibility. You heard what he said, the reason, the reason for high gas prices and shortages and inflation. It's all because oil-producing companies haven't stepped up and increased their production levels. Well, guess what? We don't control Saudi Arabia, Iran. We don't control Yemen. We don't control any other country. What he's refusing to acknowledge is that when he took office, months before he took office, we didn't have an oil shortage. We were producing enough for ourselves, which meant we didn't have to go to the Middle East, to OPEC, to Russia, and beg them to increase their production so that the price of oil at the pump, gasoline and diesel, would go down here in the United States. Do you think there's a little stupidity in this thought process that we're talking about here? Who in their right mind as an American, would even think that anybody overseas, 
especially people that are driven in large part by dollars and cents. They hold all the the gold. And I'm speaking about oil now. What incentive is there for OPEC to do anything for us? I guarantee you this conversation has happened and probably in Arabic. I'm sure in Russian as well. Here's what it would sound like. Hey, can you believe those stupid Americans? They let their president turn their energy sector upside down. He turned off the spigot of oil. They were killing us because we could keep our prices going up, 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 and up before they got energy independence. And now he's doing exactly what's best for us. And he wants us to bail him out? Go figure. That's never going to happen. We're back on our energy gravy train. We have the Americans on their knees, their president begging us to increase our production of oil. And he's so foolish that he actually said, if we can get these foreign partners to increase their production, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive our prices at the pump, drive them back down. Do you think OPEC or Russia or even Iran, I guarantee you, somehow, someway, Iran produces a bunch of oil. Somehow, someway, we are getting in the United States some of our oil that originates in Iran. Can you imagine any one of those entities, OPEC, Iran, Russia, ever even thinking about, even if they did increase their production, dropping their prices just because Joe Biden asked them to? And yet, you're listening to the president. He's trying to sell this foolishness to you and me. He continued. I've worked hard these past few weeks and calls and meetings with foreign leaders, I will do what needs to be done to reduce the price you pay at the pump. From the middle class and working families that are spending much too much and it's a strain, and you're the reason I was sent here to look out for you. My effort to combat climate change is not raising the price of gas. Even as we meet, even as we meet to work uh, out this challenge, it's important to maintain perspective about where our economy stands today. All you're hearing is deflect, deflect, deny, denied, fade the heat towards someone else. Throughout this entire speech that he gave yesterday, he constantly kept everything up at the emotional level. He's playing, or his speechwriter, whoever came up with this, they're playing on the emotions of Americans, especially this time of year. Holiday season is always either really good or it's really bad for most people in not just the United States, but in the world. Holiday season, we always look at our circumstances, personal circumstances, and we judge where we are based upon our circumstances. Certainly not what a guy in Washington, D.C. is reading from a teleprompter who happens to sit in the spot, the most important, the strongest, Uh, the most powerful spot in politics, not just in the United States, but in the world. And he's not telling us things, folks, that we don't already know. He's talking about, you know, the, the, the level where I know there are people out there that are struggling, 
They're wondering how they're going to have the ability to buy food to put on their tables or Christmas presents this year. You know what I would have done? You know what Donald Trump would have done if he was president and this was going on? First of all, this wouldn't be going on. He would have waded into this long before his term in office began by his being inaugurated. There would be a plan in place. The American people would know what the plan is. Foreign leaders would each know what the plan is. And the plan would have been implemented and operated for 10 months now instead of sitting here listening to our president tell us, I tried, I tried. You heard him just say, our oil shortage has nothing to do with the green energy programs that I've instituted. And I'm paraphrasing what he said. But that's the context. That's the meaning of what he said. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. We're going to do the climate change thing. He has no sense of awareness for the problems his policies are causing the people he governs. And that's sad. I wish I could say he was finished and everything's out there, but he wasn't finished. The fact is, America has a lot to be proud of. We're experiencing the strongest economic recovery in the world. Uh, even after accounting for inflation, our economy is bigger and our families have more money in their pockets than they did before the pandemic. There is no justification or proof that what he just said is true. Americans are doing better and have more money in their pockets. The insanity of this line of reasoning that he keeps throwing out there in his speeches is this. I signed a bill that put $1,400 in every American family's pocket. Yeah, he signed that bill back in the spring. How far does $1,400 go in your world? How many tanks of gas? How many school lunches? How many bills that you have Do you still have $1,400 or a big part of it in your bank account that you can use? The so-called purpose for that particular act by this administration that came through Congress, the point of it was it was necessary. Why? Because you weren't able to work. You were laid off. You had no income like you had before the pandemic. So instead of his reasoning be logical that according to what he's saying here, hey, when you got that $1,400 check, you put it in the bank because you didn't need it then. You saved it up so you can buy Christmas presents. There are, I'm certain, there are some Americans that did that, and the reason they could do it is because they had enough money, enough cash flow to make that okay. But I'll guarantee you, the only people that did that, with maybe a few exceptions, are people that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer continuously say publicly are those evil multimillionaires, billionaires, you know, those people that don't pay any taxes. Regular old American people like you and me. I I don't I didn't get that fourteen hundred dollars, but Most people that got it, they spent it, and that's what they got it for. We're the only leading economy in the world where household income 
and the economy as a whole are stronger than they were before the pandemic hit. I could not believe his closing sentence. We're the only nation in the world that can say our economy is stronger now than it was before the pandemic. I don't know a American person that can legitimately and honestly say that. Unless, of course, you're an employee of Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson that is in the division that handles selling vaccines and selling them all to one customer. The American people and your company this year, Pfizer, is going to make $3 billion of profit. $3 billion in one year. I don't have the numbers for Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, but they're in the billions as well. Those people got plenty of money. They're going to have Merry Christmases. Those stockholders and the big-time CEOs and boardroom folks, they're going to have big Christmases. They're not worried at all. They number among those filthy rich one percenters that AOC and the rest of the squad Every time they get to a television camera or an open microphone, they blast those people. How dare they? They don't pay any federal income taxes, which is BS. We've debunked it here over and over and over again, but still they keep throwing out that fodder. Is there anybody on this planet that listens to them? Sadly, yeah, there are. Well, you heard the president to get it started. I'm sure that puts you in a rosy state of mind to usher in Thanksgiving and our holiday season. We still have former Governor Jennifer Granholm, now Secretary of the Energy Department. We have Jen Psaki, and we're going to talk about that horror story that came out. It's even worse than the original Waukesha Christmas Parade story. That's all ahead and a whole lot more. And we'll get to all of that right after this. Join a community of online learning and find your bright future at the American Women's College of Bay Path University. Getting your college education doesn't necessarily make it so you have different self-worth or you mean more. There's so many different roads you can take. But if you have the feeling that you want it, go get it. The American Women's College is supportive and kind. And what you've created has changed lives. And I'm so grateful that I can say I've been part of it. Enrolling now for September and November at baypath.edu slash future. Cars today are computers on wheels. That's it. Uh, The fancy new tech makes our life easier in the car. But when something breaks, can you afford to fix the touchscreen display or the sensor, which can cost thousands of dollars? Most likely, no. That's why I have CarShield, and it takes away the worry and the panic of the expensive repair that you know is coming. CarShield, their protection plans can save you thousands for covered repairs, including everything from an engine, transmission, GPS, electronics, and more. You can have your favorite mechanic or dealership do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary roadside assistance and a rental car. It's inevitable something's going to break. It happens to everybody, including me. So get coverage from America's number one auto protection company like I did and find out why CarShield cars go farther. Rates are as low as $99 a month, so visit carshield.com. Use the promo code iHeart to save 10%. That's carshield.com, promo code iHeart. Deductible may apply. This is the sound of regular water droplets. 
This is the sound of vitamin water droplets. Regular water, vitamin water. Regular water, vitamin water. Hey, come on now. Vitamin water. It has vitamins, but also parties. In a world of change, one thing remains constant. The bedrock of truth. Welcome to the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org Let me ask you a question, a yes or no question. I'm just thinking through a lot of these travesties that we look at and talk about and live in and live through every day. Did you in any way, when the vaccine mandate started coming down, we predicted here and we told you and many much smarter people than us have told us for a long time, vaccine mandates is what this is all about, forcing people to be vaccinated. Did you in your wildest imagination think that so many people would stand up against it so quickly? It's restored my faith in the core of the American people. I think more and more we're finding out that there are some real, real, real good patriots out there that are willing to fight and pay the price, whatever that may be, for the right thing, especially at our government level. And I know, I know, the uh, cancel culture folks in the far left, they don't want to hear this. But it's a good thing. It's an honorable thing to become a patriot. A patriot means somebody that really loves what they inherited just by being born or being naturalized in the nation as a citizen. And because we live in the United States of America... We are citizens. We have all the rights and privileges that are afforded us that were paid for long ago by those that came before us. And we're continuing that struggle so that our children, our grandchildren, will be able to live through those same good things. Patriots are rising up and saying, enough is enough. Government control over people's lives has spread like fire since the beginning of the pandemic. Small business owners lost their livelihood. Students couldn't go to schools. We couldn't even go to pray at our own church. One firefighter in Chicago, he, uh, he came forward and he said this. He relayed that, but he said it wasn't his fight, not when he first realized what was going on. As captain of a firehouse on the southwest side of Chicago, a guy whose last name is Trugstead, and his team had to remain on the front line of the pandemic responding to COVID-19 patients, people overdosed on drugs, and victims of violent crimes. Many firefighters and paramedics in Chi-Town contracted the virus, beat the illness after days or weeks of symptoms, and returned to the front line. However, four of those Chicago firefighters lost the war against COVID-19. It didn't take too long before that fire reached his own station. In August, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced her vaccination policy for city workers that included about 5,000 fire department employees. It was simple. 
All city workers got to be vaxxed by October 15th, except for those who were granted medical or religious exemptions. Trogstad hoped his union would stand up and demand that the mayor loosen the policy, perhaps adding a testing option or an acknowledgement of natural immunity. After all, his union, Chicago Firefighters Union Local 2, has a contract with the city that says any change in conditions of employment requires good faith bargaining. But his union didn't. In fact, most unions representing Chicago city workers didn't do it either. The only unions that took a strong stand on the vaccine policy were four law enforcement unions which represent city cops, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains. However, their talks with city eventually broke down. Last month, October 8th, Mayor Lightfoot handed out her final vaccine mandate. It said all city workers had to report their vaccination status and do so through an online portable by my mid-October and be fully vaxxed by the end of December, except for those with approved exemptions. Any failure to comply with either deadline would result in an individual being put on no-pay status and only allowed to return to work after complying with the mandate. Lightfoot also warned all those who remained non-compliant could be fired. So all of a sudden, guess what happened? Trugstad, he said, this is my fight now. If I don't take the stand right now, I couldn't look my kids in the eye. That's the way I feel about it. We're at a point where you have to act to preserve the American freedom for our children. He said, finally, we got to a point where the government encroachment started to affect everybody. We got to the point where people are going to rise up. When I say rise up, I mean nothing more than simply not comply. He didn't report his VAC status through the online portal, nor did he submit a vaccination exemption request. Any acts of compliance, no matter how small, gave validity to the policy. That's what he said. He became a member of a fighting minority who wouldn't comply in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So by mid-month last month, roughly three out of 10 fire department employees, 30% refused to report their vaccination status by the deadline. It was the second lowest compliance rate among all city departments. And his fight, it came at a big price he having to pay. On the 20th of October, the department put him on no pay status which meant he couldn't work until he complied with the mandate. That meant a monthly paycheck loss of about $8,000 as a fire captain and a potential loss of his health insurance in the coming weeks. His wife, who still works, has health issues and relies on monthly medication costing $5,000. He also supports two children, a son in college, a daughter in high school. He said this, my wife and I and my kids are on the same team. We believe the moment we stand in is bigger than anything for us personally. It's time for us to start acting like Americans and reclaim our position as the government. I have nothing but faith in God. It'll be a bumpy road, but I'll be fine. While it's a fire he can't extinguish with a fire engine and a hose, He can fight it with legal tools, he said. 
October 21st, a day after he was put on no-pay status, he filed a federal civil lawsuit along with 113 other firefighters and paramedics and 21 city workers against the city of Chicago over this vaccine mandate. The lawsuit stated, when COVID-19 infections were at their worst, firefighters and paramedics fought on the front line to save lives. Many caught the virus and recovered and gained natural immunity, which several medical experts is they're saying it's just as effective as the immunity acquired through a vaccine, and in many cases, natural immunity is much better. It says the city, the suit does, the city failed to give the employees due process before putting them on no-pay status, and that's a violation of city ordinances. Moreover, it alleges the vaccine mandate violates a fundamental constitutional right, the right to privacy, which includes bodily autonomy. It's a type of lawsuit that's used commonly across the country when state and federal judges are asked to reconcile the competing interest of public health and personal freedom during a pandemic. Troxted's attorney, Jonathan Lubin, argues that now that COVID infections are slowing down, the city's actions to force a low percentage of unvaxxed essential workers, many of them, by the way, already have natural immunity, to get shots or lose their jobs aren't directly or rationally related to preserving the life and health of Chicagoans. However, U.S. District Judge John Lee of the D.C. Court for Northern District of Illinois thinks legal precedents suggest that vaccine mandates can stand. The precedents he's speaking about are a 1905 Supreme Court decision that backed Massachusetts smallpox vaccination mandate and a more recent 7th U.S. Court of Appeals decision that upheld Indiana University's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Lee also said he trusted the city had arrived at its vax policy through an informed, scientific, and rational process. He didn't say exactly what that process was. Anyway, on October 29th, the judge declined a request by Trogstead and fellow plaintiffs to temporarily halt the city's vaccine mandate. So in the next few weeks, Lee has been considering their request for a preliminary order to stop the mandate after an examination of more evidence and arguments from both parties. By November 1, hundreds of previously non-compliant Chicago Fire Department employees changed course and reported their VAX status. A few decided to do so after being placed on no-pay status and have returned to work. Trogstad? He's staying the course. He said, it's a personal stand. It's a moral line in the sand that I would never, never allow myself to cross. He tries to keep up his hope about the lawsuit. At the same time, he's looking for a job. He got his last paycheck on November 5th. It says $600. His side gig at Northern Illinois Public Safety Training Academy, training firefighters, helps pay some of the bills. He also received donations from a local nonprofit. But Trogstead, he's got to look for a job that comes with health benefits to cover his wife's very expensive medication. Any job he could find probably pays half of his fire captain income. 
He said, I'm very disappointed that my 22-year career dedicated to fire service came to a screeching halt over this. If there's a legal remedy, I would love to go back to the fire department and continue to serve Chicago. But if I lose the fight, it'll break my heart. But God has and will set me on a path, and I'll continue to follow that path wherever it leads. There's some good news, at least a positive turn in this. Two weeks ago, Trogstad's union filed a lawsuit against the city, accusing it of a union contract violation and demanding it bargain over the vaccine policy. The lawsuit also asked the court to halt the mandate. Days earlier, 23 unions representing different sectors of Chicago workers also filed similar lawsuits against the city. Their actions came days after Chicago Police Union scored a small victory in court. That was on November 1st. That day, Cook County Judge Raymond Mitchell ruled to stay the city's vaccinine deadline for Chicago police only until such a time when the city and police unions came to an agreement on that vaccine policy. That small victory was won by the unions in part because of police officers like an officer named Stephanie Mingary. Mingary was among the first group of officers put on no-pay status simply for not complying with the vaccine mandate. That delivered some hard evidence of the city's violation of that union contract. At first, Mingary didn't think the city would really do this to her. She asked how police officers who allegedly committed DUI, domestic violence, are still doing desk work and getting paid. While the city lets officers, street beat officers, go home unpaid simply because they won't report their vaccination status. The city can't make up rules without her union's consent, she said. Also, McGarry thinks there's another epidemic going on in Chicago, and we all know what that is. It's an epidemic of gun violence. In 2021, nearly 4,000 people were shot, 700 were killed, the highest level of violence the city has seen in over a decade. Surely, she thought, the city would need every cop on duty to combat the crimes. Though she isn't a patrol officer, she's routinely called on by management to leave her police academy office and work the street whenever she's needed. Earlier this year, she was detailed to a summer mobile unit for a couple of months to beep up the patrol in violent districts on the south side of Chicago. Last year, when the riots broke out, she worked 12 to 14 hours on the street every day for two months. So Mingary said she was really hurt when told by her deputy chiefs to hand in her badge and gun and go home. That was on October 18th. You are pulling police officers. What about the thousands of people who have been shot or killed this year? What are their priorities? Me being vaccinated or me out there and patrolling and protecting the citizens, which is it? She said, I will not comply because they are doing this wrong. This is not about the vaccine. It is about our rights, and it's about a lawful order. By the middle of last month, Chicago's police had the lowest compliance rate of the vaccine mandate among every city department, and it remains that to this day. 
Mingari can make her stand because her family still has income. They have medical insurance from her husband's job. She feels for co-workers who complied under duress simply because of financial pressures, and she will fight for them. I get my morals from my religion, which says you fight for what is right and you fight for the person who cannot fight for themselves. She said she's showing her two sons that you have to fight for what is right. Other unions see that we're fighting and making progress. They're joining the fight too. Unfortunately, it did take our original group of police officers to go into no-pay status, but we made an impact. Judge Mitchell, he wrote this in his order, quote, It is worth remembering that in the darkest days of the pandemic and the months that followed, when I worked remotely in the safety of my home, the men and women of the Chicago Police Department showed up to work every day. Several died after contracting the virus on the job. In light of their terrible sacrifice, the police union's request just to have their grievances heard seems a pretty modest request. Obey now, grieve later. A maxim in labor law is not possible here. If every union member complied and was vaxxed by December 31, they would have no grievance to pursue and there would be no remedy and that an arbitrator can award. An award of back pay or reinstatement cannot undo a vaccine or a vaccine mandate. Nothing can. I guess the most ironic thing in this whole bevy of ironies in Chicago is putting all of this in the context of what's going on in Chicago. Folks, there's no place on, well, I won't say on the planet, but no place in this country where so many people are shot, so many people killed by gun violence as is happening and has been happening for years in Chicago. I know it's a big city. It's the third largest in our country. I get all of that. And I know there are a lot of people that are in dire straits economically, socially, emotionally. I know all of those things. But just like everything else we talk about and we converse about with you and we discuss here at Truth News Network and TNN Live, everything we talk about is built upon a fundamental thing the cornerstone of what this nation is supposed to be all about, which is honoring the rule of law, honoring a constitution, which, by the way, is known worldwide. Ours, our U.S. Constitution is known worldwide as being the best country founding document in world history. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. That's why our forefathers thought and instigated within the document the ability to amend it. But what has happened is over the last couple of decades, leaders among us who took it upon themselves to question the validity of the document and to question the ability of the people to control our government, by their votes, they didn't like that. 
They are the ones that went to D.C., found out how much they can do for themselves and those in their lives on a personal basis by using the people's government to reach their ends. So much so that, I mean, it's no longer even a surprise when one lawmaker gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar, somehow increasing things and benefits and opportunities for themselves when their number one marching order, their only marching order that they should be listening to is the one that comes to them from the people they represent. With that came this thirst and hunger, consuming thirst and hunger to get more power, to get totalitarian power. There's the T word. We're not going to go back to yesterday's story, but you know where I'm going with this. We're in a slide, and every day, just when we think we've seen it all, it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> it gets worse. It just kills me to think that here are people that for the better part of a year, they were the ones that stood in the line to stand between citizens of their city and a pandemic and everything that it brought with it. When people had a health emergency and called 911, they didn't question that nobody was going to come. Never thought about it because this is the United States of America. There are Chicagoans. They know what the police force and the fire department, how those people think and how they act. They're loyal. They're committed. They are loyal and committed to the people that they serve. While their government, Lori Lightfoot is just one example of it. They don't give a rip about the people. If they did, they would be working together to fix these problems. Lori Lightfoot does nothing but sit somewhere up high downtown and uh, the city government. I don't know where they're located in Cook County or Chicago, but anyway, they're in their place and they sit in their place. They look at the world of Chicagoans in a way different lens than do people out in the burbs. And those opinions of those people that live outside her circle, sadly, they obviously don't matter. Why? I don't know Lori Lightfoot. We can find out who people are by listening to what they say and watching what they do. And she is not governing in a form that's best for the people that elected her to be mayor. Same thing can be said about a huge portion of the 535 people in Congress that Americans elected to go serve them. They don't do without. They don't. They have plenty. They usually have plenty when they get there, but even if they don't have very much, even if they're still struggling, even if they're just average American people that want to serve the government and they get elected from their districts or their states to do just that, without exception, every one of them, if and when they decide to leave service in government, they're filthy rich. They've got great opportunities. They go into jobs, into corporations, into positions that give them a virtually almost unlimited opportunity to improve 
their own personal lives. How does that happen? How does a servant become a king just because they get elected and get a title? We all know. I'm not going to get into that. But it's a sad thing. And people, Americans' lives are at stake. How many? Over 300 million of us. And yet the puppeteers in D.C. and in our state houses and our big city houses, even our little townhouses, the puppeteers there, they like pulling our strings. They like controlling the marionettes, which we are. I don't see them voluntarily giving that up anytime soon. I'm not talking about a revolution. I'm talking about understanding and doing something about it. Real truth, real news. TNN, the Truth News Network. Uh Uh-oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Julie, hey, guess what day it is? Oh, come on, I know you can hear me. Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Leslie, guess what today is? It's hump day. Woo-hoo! Ronnie, how happy are folks who save hundreds of dollars switching to Geico? I'd say happier than a camel on Wednesday. Hump day! Get happy. Yeah! Get Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Today on Hey Culligan, softer equals better. Here's a tweet from Ed Itchy in Idaho. Hey Culligan, my laundry is so scratchy I just cut myself on a cable knit sweater. Any suggestions? Hashtag send help. Hey Ed Itchy in Idaho, yes, the Culligan high efficiency water softener will make that thing so soft it'll go from cable knit to cable knot. Itchy. Hashtag soft laundry. Hashtag already on the way. Get started for as little as $10 a month for six months at participating Culligan dealers. If you think we're just four wheels in a grill, think again. The Jeep Grand Cherokee redefines freedom. But what really makes Jeep? It's finding the perfect balance between luxury and adventure without ever compromising. It's driving across the country to see your family, to make new memories. So, what makes Jeep? You do. Jeep. There's only one. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. The stages may be bare, but the show goes on with the iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Every week, we play an entire cast album and give you behind-the-scenes stories from the show's stars. This Saturday, Moulin Rouge. Welcome to the Moulin Rouge! This is Danny Burstein from Moulin Rouge the Musical, and you're listening to iHeartRadio Broadway. The iHeartRadio Broadway Saturday Matinee. Today at 2 at iHeartRadioBroadway.com. Driven by Mercedes-AMG. Driving performance. Oh, my gosh. There's nothing like... Quiet, calm, smooth jazz to get you in a good mood the day before Thanksgiving. I know when it hits 12 noon today, if you haven't already, you're done. You're going into Thanksgiving. You've got Thursday. Most of you have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You're either going somewhere. I know factually there are people that are in their cars headed out of town that are listening to TNN Live right now. Be careful. Have a great holiday. And just enjoy what you're doing. Smooth jazz. I like smooth. Everybody that knows me knows I like smooth jazz. Our daughters call it elevator music. (laughs) 
I uh, I grew up in an era where there really was elevator music and it wasn't smooth jazz. It was some symphony orchestra or some 1940s, 50s um, person singing a song. Smooth jazz, that's the good stuff. I enjoy it. I like pretty much uh, most kinds of music. There are a few that I just can't get into, but I appreciate talent. I really do. Um... We always think about what's happening in Europe. Have you noticed that everything to do with COVID-19, everything here in the United States, everything our government says, everything they do, our medical communities, it's all pointed to what happened before to the East. Everything seems to start in Asia. Then it ends up in Europe, the Middle East and Europe, and then it ends up over here. So what's happening now regarding restrictions and mandates and stuff over in Europe? We told you the other day that Austria's really been struggling with COVID cases, and they've just turned into a a legitimate total lockdown. We told you about that. While Austria has entered into another national lockdown that has forced bars and restaurants, cinemas, pubs, gyms, all non-essential shops to shut down, Guess who hasn't shut down in Austria? You're going to love this. Ski resorts. Ski resorts within the country are allowed to continually welcoming who? People that have enough money to go to the slopes. And skiing in Austria. First of all, Austria is a very expensive company to live in or to visit. But where the ski shops and resorts are located in their operations, you got to have a lot of money to go there. Austrians have largely been confined to their homes for a week or more and are only allowed to leave to buy food and to exercise under the 20-day lockdown. According to a report from the Telegraph, skiing is considered a recreational outdoor exercise. And because it is, slopes have been allowed to remain open. Ski lifts and cable cars have also been permitted to keep operating as they've been defined as essential services. (laughs) In other words, there are people in the government in Austria that want to spend their Thanksgiving, and they don't have Thanksgiving. That's an American holiday. But this time of year, they want to spend it on the ski slopes. What better way to do it than to make it okay for us? While slopes have managed to dodge the lockdown order, there have been no new. Re- there have been some new restrictions put in place that resorts will be legally forced to abide by. Only those who are vaccinated will be permitted to use the slopes, as well as the lifts, with unvaccinated to be refused access totally, which is perhaps unsurprising considering the government's announcement vaccination is going to be mandatory for every Austrian citizen starting February 1st. Those who refuse the jab are going to be facing fines and even jail time. The publication Planet Ski reported that passengers are going to be required to wear protective masks on both cable cars and gondolas at the slopes. The slopes will also not be open for tourists, so you and I can't do it. Hotels across the country are shutting down during this latest lockdown, 
Bars and restaurants attached to resorts will also remain closed. This move comes about 20 months after an investigation was launched into possible negligence at one Austrian ski resort. It was believed that the ski resort may have been one of the first epicenters of the coronavirus in Europe, with it being theorized that the UK's first case started from that specific resort. The government in Austria has a history of making some really interesting decisions around which businesses are allowed to escape lockdown restrictions, notably allowing prostitutes to operate in the month of February, (laughs) while bars and nightclubs remained closed. Hmm. Rules for thee, but not for me. Sound familiar, folks? (laughs) Oh my gosh, but there is some good news on our horizon regarding vaccines here in the United States. Government and emergency response officials along with truck drivers are some of the groups that have been targeted by this president regarding crossing our borders and being vaccinated. That's coming up, folks. On January 22nd, our administration is planning to make this announcement. Let me ask you this, before we even get into what the announcement is, why would this administration tell us today that they're going to announce something on January 22nd? Why not just do it today or not say anything and do it on January 22nd? You'll understand in a minute. The White House previewed this imposition back in August. What's the imposition? Our administration is going to demand that all essential foreign travelers coming to the U.S. over land borders. Now, where would that be coming from? Coming across our southern border, coming across our northern border from Canada. Everybody coming in will have to be fully vaccinated beginning on January 22nd. So the White House, they previewed it and talked about it back in August. Nothing happened. But now this move aligns the rules for essential travelers with those that took effect earlier this month for leisure travelers when the U.S. reopened its borders to be fully vaccinated individuals. Essential travelers coming in by ferry will also be required to be fully vaccinated by the same date. The rule change will only apply to legal land crossings into the country. Can you believe that? Only legal crossings into the country. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? There's only one plausible reason for doing that, not requiring anybody and everybody that comes into the country to be vaccinated. It's because there is a purpose. There is a defined, planned, and implemented purpose by this administration to just turn the spigot wide open and let any and every illegal immigrant that wants to come into the United States, y'all come on in. But what you got to do is do it over land. 
gosh, I wish I knew exactly the details of the purpose and the reasoning for that. There's something really big and really sinister. They are hiding. They're no longer hiding that they're going to do it and that there is a purpose for them doing it the way they're doing it. They're not even trying to hide that. But they're doing it, and it's very, very dangerous. There is no question that it is very, very dangerous, and you and I are paying the price. There is always in this administration, and prior to this administration in Joe Biden's life, there is always quid pro quo. Always quid pro quo. We just don't know what it is yet. We can have our suspicions, which I do, but uh, we just don't know the facts yet. So some news came out yesterday, some information, legislation in the Biden Build Back Better rule that is being considered by the Senate. Legislation excludes faith-based providers, church people. Faith-based providers will get no building and facilities grants There will be mandates that preschool teachers have college degrees and wage parity with elementary school teachers. Little nuggets that are hidden in this bill. The House passed it last Friday. Contained in it, little noted changes to child care that critics are arguing would restrict parental choice, would drive out in-home and faith-based providers and create a one-size-fits-all program. It's the largest, the Build Back Better Act, is the largest expansion of the social safety net in decades. It spends more than $380 billion in establishing a universal pre-K entitlement, capping the cost of child care for most families at 7% of their income. While supporters have touted the new federal entitlement, critics have raised an alarm over provisions in the bill which would tilt the child care playing field decisively in favor of federally subsidized daycare, subject to federal strings that would squeeze independent and faith-based providers out of the market. The subsidies and additional regulations attached to these federal programs are going to reduce the options available to parents as the subsidies will only be available to families attending approved government programs. That's according to John Scoof and Dr. Lindsey Burke of the Heritage Foundation. Many of the standards and regulations with which program providers must comply are too expensive for small private and family child care providers. Repeated surveys show parents overwhelmingly use and prefer family care from trusted individuals over the kind of full-time, center-based care favored by the Build Back Better Act. Even the majority of working parents who use center-based child care, they opt for a faith-based program. Three major provisions in the spending bill could prove especially troublesome for millions of parents. First, the bill provides grant funding to child care providers for, and this is a quote, construction, permanent improvement, or major renovation, with the explicit exception 
of faith-based providers. Eligible child care providers may not use funds for buildings or facilities that are used primarily for sectarian instruction or religious worship. Critics argue this provision is discriminatory, which obviously it is, allowing for profit providers to use government money to serve more kids, but not faith-based ones. This carve-out is unconscionable. It's also potentially unconstitutional. That's Bradford Wilcox and Patrick Brown. They are fellows at the American Enterprise Institute and Ethics and Public Policy Center. Progressives are so concerned about one cent to public money going to support the workings of a place of worship that they'd rather bar them from benefiting from money intended to expand all child care access. Traditionally, any child care grants have been treated differently than formal federal grants, and that necessitate several federal regulations. But critics note the Build Back Better Act eliminates this distinction, treating providers that accept subsidies as recipients of federal financial assistance. What does it mean? It means faith-best providers will have to adhere to a series of non-discrimination regulations, here we go, if they accept aid. As a result, they may not be able to operate or hire staff based on their beliefs. It boils down to the First Amendment, folks. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Churches, synagogues, and mosques that still opt to provide subsidized child care may be forced to sacrifice the religious character of their programs if they want to stay in business. This all goes upstream. None of it any longer flows from the people up. Now, it starts at the top, and it stays at the top. More money, more power taken from the American people. More opportunities taken from the American people, pushed up to the top to the government, and the government takes total control of Americans' lives. Don't be shocked, folks. They made it very clear. One of the underwriting goals of this administration, and any future Democrat administration, by the way, is to seize as much power to take away as much freedoms from the people and put it in the pockets of our governor government. That's the way they want it to work, and we're seeing them put it in play. Regarding all of this, with this massive social spending bill facing an uncertain future in the Senate, most media attention has focused on two people, They're Democrats in the Senate. Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, both Democrats. But one prominent Republican says she senses that more Democrats in the chamber who are looking at really tight 2022 re-election races are considering bolting from this trillion-dollar Build Back Better legislation which passed the House last week on a party-line vote. Not only is it Manchin, but you've got about five or six others in the Senate that are looking at their races 
They're down in their polls or they're tied in their polls. This is Senator Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee talking. She continued, and the Republican ballot is up. Joe Biden, his popularity is just unbelievably low. I mean, whoever thought he would be lower than Jimmy Carter? It's harder every day for Democrats to support this abysmal bill. And she said that during a podcast she was appearing in. Some of these House members who finally came around and voted for it, they might as well start cleaning their office out and heading to the House. Give somebody else their proxy to vote. They will not be reelected. Senator Blackburn suggested Democrats' support is weakening as the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, found the legislation is going to add significantly to the U.S. debt. Americans understand those costs will be passed on to them. Fears grow that a massive injection of federal spending is only going to make things worse, and it's going to increase what we're already seeing in the I-word, inflation. All of this is going to be paid by people that are hardworking people. And Joe Biden said, oh, I'm not raising a penny in taxes on anybody making under $400,000 a year, she said. Well, that's not true. It's not true on a lot of different fronts. And people know this. Again, that fallback position is we know more than you do. We're the federal government. Just shut up and listen to us. Seriously, that's what's being said, and that's what we're seeing them walk out. They're doing it every every day, getting into it every day. Boy, we've got so many things that I want to get to today that we haven't had time to do it. There's something happening, some very disturbing stuff that is coming to light over that Waukesha, Wisconsin parade horror that happened where that man just ran his SUV right into the middle of a Christmas parade, killed six people now. The number's at six. Sixty people are hurt. I've got that horror news that just came out right after this. You get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. So much, I'm going to have to speed things up. You can get the claim-free discount, which gives you money off your homeowner's policy if you've been claim-free for three consecutive years. Also applies for three successive years, three years straight, and what's known to insurance fans as the claim-free three-peat. Get a whole lot of something with Farmers Policy Perks. Start with a quote by calling 1-800-FARMERS. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Now for the legal something. Not available in every state. Only available with select farmers branded policies subject to terms and conditions underwritten by Farmers Truck or Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. I'm famous chef Tony Magoni, owner of Tony Magoni's Steakhouse. And when people ask me where I get my award-winning meat from, it's from one place, Meaty Bits. No matter what you need, be it a smoked pig, a goat by sunset, or a 10-foot alligator and a salty brine, mm-hmm, Meaty Bits will get it to you fast with a smile and completely without judgment. So, if it's good enough for Tony Magoni's Steakhouse, why not be good enough for Joe Public's home house? Mmm, yeah. Get in touch with Meaty Bits and tell them Tony sent you. Meaty Bits. If it ever was alive, they can get it to you dead. Mmm. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion smoky pork. Better sour cream, salt, and vinegar, too. You sample them all, cause the crisp is so good on your lips. Yeah. 
you left your wallet at home, but now you have a new best friend. The many flavors of Lay's chips. One taste and you're in love. You love chocolate. Mmm, chocolate. You love M&M's. Oh, yes. But your tastes have grown up, and you're just not wild about super sweet milk chocolate. So you've been avoiding M&M's. Yeah. Well, fear no more. Huh? M&M's dark chocolate to the rescue. My heroes! M&M's dark chocolate candies. Available wherever fine candies are sold. The view from the top is reserved for the bold. And the bold tell the truth. Truthnewsnet.org Just in case you forgot, we will not have a TNN Live show tomorrow. Thanksgiving Day, back in the saddle on Friday. We, uh, We may have a surprise or two on Friday. So I know it's probably a day off for you and you'll be around the house, maybe visiting with relatives or maybe you're on the road visiting with relatives. I just encourage you to take a little bit of time Friday morning and tune in to TNN Live. I know many of you will already be doing that anyway. So what's happening up in Waukesha? We're just going to go right to this television station report from Waukesha in Wisconsin. And I've not seen anything like this in my very long career. A Waukesha County judge in disbelief as we learn disturbing new allegations in the Waukesha parade attack and get a tragic update from one family. Today we learn Daryl Brooks is accused of purposely veering side to side to hit more people as he drove his SUV through the crowd. And today the death toll tragically rising as the family of an eight-year-old boy announced their son has died. The little boy's death adding to the suspect's charges, with his bail now set at $5 million. Tia Ewing joins us now from the live desk with more on what unfolded in court today. Well, we learned that the suspect has a lengthy criminal history. The prosecutor said Brooks used his SUV as a weapon before, the same one police say he was in when he mowed down people on the parade route Sunday. Shackled by his hands and feet, 39-year-old Daryl Brooks made his first court appearance. Lastly, count five, first-degree intentional homicide regarding victim E is a Class A felony. That is punishable uh, by a sentence to imprisonment for life. Waukesha County Court Commissioner Kevin Costello read off the five counts of intentional homicide. But while in court, a sixth victim and the youngest died from the parade crash. Jackson Sparks was only eight years old. The Sparks family put out a statement that says his 12-year-old brother, Tucker, by the grace of God, is miraculously recovering from his injuries and will be discharged home. This afternoon, our dear Jackson has sadly succumbed to his injuries and passed away. This is the ring video where Brooks was arrested on a stranger's porch less than a mile from where police say he drove his SUV through a barricade, hitting parade goers in Waukesha Sunday. And court prosecutors say this wasn't the first time Brooks used his vehicle as a weapon. The allegations in that case, Your Honor, are that he struck the mother of his child in the face with a closed fist. Then as she was walking away from him, he intentionally ran her over with his vehicle. The prosecutors outlined a long history of crimes dating back to 1999. Brooks has been arrested for battery, resisting arrest, and is supposed to be a registered sex offender out of Nevada. The judge made a decision to set a $5 million cash bail. It's extraordinarily high, but it's an extraordinarily big case. It's an extraordinarily 
serious case with an extraordinary history. Now, Brooks will have a preliminary hearing on January 14th of next year. At the live desk, Tia Ewing, Fox 32 Chicago. You know, it's tough to even weigh in after you listen to that. I mean, the guy, it, 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 as, as much as I stand in disbelief that any person would do what he did, we all assumed that it was going to be just like happened in Manhattan a couple of years ago where for terrorist purpose, this guy, he is in a truck or a van and he just gets up on the sidewalk and starts mowing down people. I thought it was surely going to be a similar situation. Have you checked this guy out? I'm not even going to use his name. I don't want to justify it anymore. We found out day before yesterday, very early when this report came live, um, he was a wannabe rap artist, and I found very quickly, just as we went on the air, a song, a rap song that he had done. We played the, just the first few bars of his rap song, and I heard the F word four times in about 20 seconds. I said, enough is enough. Now, profanity and the use of profanity doesn't make anybody bad. I'm just saying that. It wasn't about that. And then listening to his other things that he said and what he has done, he is literally a career criminal. There's no other way to describe him. And uh, you shouldn't be surprised when a career criminal does something criminal. That's what they do. I'm reminded of that old rock climber story, rock climber climbing up a cliff, a sheer precipice, and he gets to a little carve out. He wants to pull himself up and take a few moments rest. And as he does, he looks over in the corner. There's a rattlesnake coiled up there and it scared him for a second, the rock climber. He pulled back and the rattlesnake spoke to him and said, hey, I'm not going to bite you. If I have to stay here, I'm going to die. I can't get to the top of this precipice. Please take me with you. If I stay here, I'm going to die. And Rock Climber looked at him and said, I'm not going to carry you up. As soon as I do, you'll bite me. And the snake convinced him he wouldn't do it. So the Rock Climber, he gives in. He wraps the snake around his, his neck, and he starts climbing up. And sure enough, they're right at the point where the Rock Climber is going to reach up and pull them up over on the edge. And just as he does that, the snake bites him in the neck shocked the rock climber. He let go, and as they were both, the snake and the rock climber, falling to their death, the rock climber says, you promised you wouldn't bite me. Now we're both going to die. And the snake said, you knew exactly what I was when you picked me up. I think we can all relate to that story, looking back at circumstances in our life. But this guy, folks, and we've all heard the bear, the Bale horror stories. Just as AOC and Rashida Tlaib and other members of the squad are campaigning for Bale to just be totally 100% obliterated. In fact, Rashida Tlaib is crying for every federal prison to be closed. This happens. This is just one example of travesties that happen. People who are going to break laws and perpetrate criminal actions. You know what they do, folks? They break laws, and they commit criminal travesties against other people. 
I would definitely love the fact if everybody in this nation would just abide by laws, wouldn't you? But tragically, that's not what happens. It happens sometimes. It happens most of the time, thank God. But in cases like this, when people who are criminals commit criminal actions and people die, we're just shocked. Oh my gosh, the guy got out on bail just a couple of days before this happened for $500 and the criminal act that he did allegedly was try to run over and kill his wife. We've got a story about that district attorney up there that uh, allowed this to happen. And he allowed it to happen by, he's the one that went for the bail dollar value. And he justified it. He made excuses for it. Hopefully we have time in this last half hour to get to that story. But I don't want, I don't want to move past this one thing. We've told you Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm uh, was going to come on the show and she was going to explain our oil consumption issues and what her plans and President Biden's plans are about resolving our uh, energy issue that's causing the price of gasoline to go through the roof. She's a former governor, now Secretary of Energy in the Biden administration, Jennifer Granholm. We are doing everything in our power to reduce burdens for real people and uh, to give opportunity to American families. And top of mind, of course, as you have heard today, is making sure that every American has access to affordable energy, both at home and at the pump. And um, while our energy information agency, and that's underneath the DOE, it uh, predicts that we are going to turn the corner in 2022, the fact is right now that energy prices at the pump and at home are too high. This um, administration realizes that people are seeing this every single day as they go to work, as they fill their, their cars with gas. President um, does not control the price of gasoline. No president does. Um, we in this administration are leaving no stone unturned as we uh, examine the market to figure out what's behind uh, the high prices. Uh, but this administration has been looking at every single tool that we can use to shield families from the rising costs of fuel. The president has been really thoughtful about this. I mean, this is, you know, we've looked at every angle of what the tools are to him. There are various figures about this. So I'm curious if you know, how many barrels of oil does the U.S. consume per day? I don't have that number in front of me. Sorry. So some suggest it's about 18 million, which would suggest you're releasing less than three days' worth of supply from the petroleum reserve. Why is that enough? Well... We, what we are doing, plus what other countries may be doing, which will be less than what we're doing. Two things I want to I note regarding what she just said. First of all, she went on and on and on about, you know, the president's doing this and we're doing that and we're trying to get to the root causes. And then, of course, Joe needed to make some headlines addressing our energy process and our problems. And so he comes out and says, hey, guess what I'm doing? i am ordered the release of 50 million barrels of oil out of the U.S. oil reserves, emergency oil reserves. He didn't say this, but what he was saying is, I have a heart for the people. 
I have all the answers. And the answer is, even though I'm not going to tell you, the real answer is, I don't know what the heck to do to get it resolved other than restart the energy independence that uh, I shut down on my first day in office and let the American energy industry take control and do the things that they all know how to do. You know, those things that drove the price of gas at the pump way, 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 way down, lower than it had been in more than a decade and helped us become energy independent. All those experts, uh uh-uh, they don't have any say-so. They've got to listen to me. I could do that, but I'm not going to do it. But it's not because I'm a feeling, I'm not a feeling person that's considerate of all your problems. It's because it's not the right thing to do. And you know why I know it's not the right thing to do? Because my handlers told me that, and they know everything. That's exactly what's going on there. His secretary of energy, the secretary of the energy department, supposed to know anything and everything about the United States and its energy problems. She didn't even know the amount of oil it takes for this nation to function on a daily basis. The reporters suggested it was about 18 million barrels a day. It's not. It's actually 20 million. But even at that, and even with Biden releasing 50 million barrels. Golly, it sounds like that's killer, doesn't it? It's only two and a half days of energy requirement. Two and a half days. And by the way, how that process works, you don't release, open up a spigot, and gasoline pours into the pipeline to be overnight sent around the nation. That's not what happens. It's oil, folks. It's oil. And it has to be gathered together from various locations. It has to be refined. It has to go to refineries to be developed and turned into diesel and gasoline before it ever gets to our pumps. He didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about the fact it's only two and a half days worth of gasoline supplies. Do you know what he did? He turned it around and began to point his finger at these energy companies. And he is claiming we have launched an investigation. We want to make sure there's a possibility. No, there's a probability that the energy companies are purposely inflating the prices of their petroleum products and making the American people pay more. And doing that illegally. After all, they're the illegal, the criminal energy companies that control every segment of our lives. He doesn't even understand how the process works. Do you know you drive down the road and one day you're going to refill your car. You pull in there and you pay a buck and a half, a $2, whatever. You pay $2 a gallon for a tank of gas. You feel pretty good about it. You drive for a week, and during that week, you find out the price of oil has gone up 10% just in one week. And you think, oh my gosh, price at the pump is going to go up. And the same day, you go back to the same place and you pull in the fill up, and all of a sudden, you find out the price of gas at the pump now 
is 20 cents higher than it was four days ago or five days ago. And you think automatically, and Biden and people in his administration will say this, all these energy companies are inflating the prices. They didn't pay that amount more for the gas, the oil that they have in their tanks. Millions of barrels of oil, they're already there. They're raping the American people, raising the prices high, gouging. They're going to make as much money as they can. No, he doesn't understand. When the price goes up or the price goes down, the people that put gasoline in the tanks underground for Americans to use, they have to pay the price when they buy it that the energy companies are going to charge them five days down the road, 10 days down the road. So when the notification comes out that the price of oil, the trading price of oil goes up so many dollars a barrel, the people that are going to be buying that oil that have oil and gas already in their tanks that they paid less for two weeks ago when they bought it, they're going to have to pay that new price next week when they use and sell all of the fuel they have in the tanks now. They've got to raise their prices now because next week they're going to have to pay that new price. That's part of capitalism, folks. Supply and demand and also the price, the cost of goods and services that those selling those goods and services have to pay to make it available to you. You understand that? I know you do. Joe Biden doesn't. Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, she doesn't understand it either. Neither one of them, folks, have ever worked in private industry. They've been in government forever. Let me give you an example. We talk about the frontliners, the endowed ones, the left, the powerful ones in Washington, D.C., who she is one of. Listen to this. Jennifer Granholm. She's under fire today for doing what? Promoting Proterra. Now, what is Proterra? It's an electric vehicle company. She actually served on the board of directors and held stock. That's a great novel thing. Think about it. Zero energy emission. Battery-powered cars. Wow, what a great thing to support. Well, there's an ethics complaint that is underway against her, an investigation. She oversees moving our country toward an electric vehicle transportation system. And she has, as you know, some very new and very profound powers after the passage of Biden's infrastructure package already, the one that was passed two weeks ago. And she's in trouble because she's promoting Proterra, a Burlingame, California-based electric bus company. As she was on the board, she held approximately a quarter of a million shares of stock in it, which garnered her $1.6 million when she sold those shares, but she didn't sell them until four months after she was nominated to be Secretary of the Energy. Grant Holman has been criticized for promoting Proterra, that company, in her official capacity now as Energy Secretary and for hyping grant access to companies that have connections with Proterra. 
These critics argue that her promotion of the company, which as of Monday had a market cap of uh, a paltry $2.6 billion. Her involvement has increased Proterra's visibility and potentially increased the value of her stock in the company before she was required by ethics rules to sell her shares in May. This comes at the same time that Democrats in Congress were crafting and ultimately passing that $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. That Doing that dramatically increases Granholm's authority as Energy Secretary to advance private sector companies in the transition to an electric vehicle-based transportation infrastructure. Quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Hey, I'm in the government. I'm in charge of legislative matters. I can make policy decisions. And I have control over a lot of things that weigh heavily into what you are doing. Play ball with me, and I'll play ball with you. And that's exactly what Jennifer Granholm is doing. But she's, she doesn't live in a vacuum in doing that. It happens every day. And it's not single-party driven. It's bureaucratic party-driven. How do you get into a bureaucratic party like this with all that power and control? You run for office, you get elected, and then you get your chit into the game. You get to play ball the way they play ball in Washington, D.C. And she has already cast one of her chits in the game of as the dollar world turns in Washington, D.C., So, what is Biden's wisdom on all this entire thing? He claimed yesterday with no evidence, gas companies are overcharging us at the pump by not passing on cost savings from lower wholesale gas prices to prices at the pump. I just explained that to you. The price of gas in the market has fallen by about 10% over the last couple of weeks, but the price at pump has not budged a penny. In other words, gas supply companies are paying less and making a lot more. And they don't seem to be passing that on to consumers at the pump. This is, this is Biden talking. In fact, he said if the gap between wholesale and retail gas was in line with past averages, Americans would be paying at least 25 cents less per gallon right now. Instead, companies are pocketing the difference. And that's when he announced he had instructed the Federal Trade Commission to consider whether illegal and potentially anti-competitive behavior in the oil and gas industry is solely responsible for the higher prices for consumers. No, it's because of the price they pay. And folks, this is not something new. People say it pretty much at the beginning of every summer season when the price of gas goes up, the price of oil goes up. But it doesn't all go up at the same time. It's staggered. And therefore, you don't lock yourself in if you're a gasoline retailer. You don't lock yourself in at some set price for a period of time. You don't do it. Nobody will do that because you don't know what the price of oil is going to do. So what do they do? Pretty much at best, you've got about a two-week lag time. What you bought today that's in the ground at your retail location today that you're selling to customers at whatever the price is, let's just say tomorrow we find out the price of oil went up 
2 or $3 a gallon, which it does occasionally. As a matter of fact, yesterday when all the good news came out from Biden, all that great news, that economic news, and that he was releasing 50 million barrels from our critical reserve to put that in the marketplace, he said all the news came out over the last couple of weeks that we were considering this, and that's the reason my saying that I was going to release this 50 million barrels is why the price at the pump has gone down 5 to 10 cents a gallon. It's because of me. It's because of me. Yeah, right. Yesterday, the day he announced this, the price of oil went up a dollar and eight cents a gallon a barrel. Not a gallon, but a barrel. A dollar and eight cents. Historically, there's set lag time. Wholesale prices at the pump, they go up, but they don't go up at the same time the retail price goes up. There's a lag time there. Having a little knowledge about something sure makes you look and seem a whole lot smarter than when you just pontificate based upon a political perspective, right? We don't even like to talk here about Beto O'Rourke. Don't don't like to mention his name. Um, As you know, he ran against Senator Ted Cruz. Cruz beat him. Everybody thought it was going to be a close, 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 close race or Texans, the new enlightened ones, more of those elites that have moved from California and other high-dollar places to Texas, many with their businesses, but a lot of them just with their jobs because of the tax situation in these border states like New York and California. You go to Texas, there's not an income tax, federal income tax. Well, Beto, he blasted all of this and said he was going to take it away. He was going to take away guns, yada, 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 yada. Well, now he's jumping on the concerns as he has announced and has begun his campaign to take on Greg Abbott, the sitting governor in Texas in the upcoming election. He's going to run for governor of the state. Uh, Texans, just like everybody else, are concerned over our energy grid, our energy problems following that big winter storm earlier this year that happened in Texas across the south, really, We had it here in Louisiana as well. Beto's jumped on it. He sees the electric grid as a solid wedge issue in the traditionally red state. And he's going to emphasize what has happened and what happened this winter as failures by Governor Abbott to protect Texans from deadly temperatures and soaring power bills. People in their homes were literally freezing, he said. And it was because of their government failing them. They literally felt it, and that's why it resonates well with Texans. Beto launched his bid earlier this month talking about the February blizzard and deep freeze that has been estimated to contribute to as many as 700 deaths in the state. I'm running for governor, and I want to tell you why. This is in a video that he put out. This past February, when the electricity grid failed, millions of our fellow Texans were without power, which meant that the lights wouldn't turn out, the heat wouldn't run, and pretty soon their pipes froze and the water stopped flowing. They were abandoned by those who were elected to serve and look out for them. Beto has also brought up the storm at campaign events, telling a crowd in Corpus Christi, he said this, some of you told me that you were without lights or heat or running water for more than a week. 
The storm has been featured in O'Rourke's social media and in Facebook ads. Abbott's campaign did not respond to the multiple requests for comments from the Hill on this, but Texas-based Republican strategist Brendan Steinhauser said that at the moment with nearly a year before the midterms, he doesn't think Republicans should be too worried given the prevalence of other issues. I'm not convinced that the winter storm and the fallout will be front and center of voters' minds in September and October of 2022. He added he thinks Texas voters are going to be focused on the economy, on border security, and cultural issues such as mask mandates and school curricula. And the reason that's going to be a big deal in the... You can be sure it is in this campaign. Why? Because Beto... He's got firm, very public positions on all of this stuff, on the economy, raise taxes on the wealthiest of Americans, he said. It's not going to cost regular middle-class Americans a nickel. Tax these big corporations. Open borders. He's a proponent of taking the fences down that were put up across the Texas southern border. Mask mandates, critical race theories in school, He's all for all of that. And he expects Texans, a very conservative group of Americans, he expects Texans to elect him, even though he has all of these opinions and political positions that disagree with what Texans say. You know, it's always easier, it seems like, to lash out against whoever your political opponent is instead of taking the frame that the glass is half full. Politicians' glass always seems to be half empty, and they always seem to hate on their opponents. From Krakow to Grand Island, Milan to Hanoi, this is TNN, the Truth News Network. Duncan is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Duncan with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Duncan. Sip into the fall season with the new pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Duncan. Price of participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. Grab an ice-cold can of Celsius and stay active and energized all day. Celsius is better for you energy, made with premium ingredients, zero sugar, and seven essential vitamins, with no high-fructose corn syrup, no aspartame, no preservatives, and no artificial colors or flavors. Celsius is just the essential energy you need to keep you fueled and active all day. Celsius, essential energy, live fit. Now find Celsius at Celsius.com or a retailer near you. I want to make sure we do something. I want to get into this. We didn't even talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that uh, was ended last Friday with him being exonerated and some of the horrors that uh, became very apparent in that. But one thing was then presidential candidate Joe Biden in a campaign ad, he excoriated Kyle Rittenhouse and called him a white supremacist. So now the big question is the president going to apologize to Kyle Rittenhouse? 
Would the president ever apologize to the acquitted Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse for suggesting online and on TV that he is a white supremacist? <laughs> well, let's be clear what we're talking about here. This is about a campaign video released last year that used President Trump's own words during a debate as he refused to condemn white supremacists and militia groups. And President Trump, as we know from history, and as many of you covered, didn't just refuse to condemn militia groups on the debate stage, he actively encouraged them throughout his presidency. So, uh, you know, what we've seen are the tragic consequences of that. When people think it's okay to take the law into their own hands, instead of allowing law enforcement to do its job. And the president <coughs> believes in condemning hatred, division, and violence. That's exactly what was done in that video. But if uh, you're saying that it was just a campaign video, it wasn't. The president also gave an interview where he said this uh, Rittenhouse was part of a militia coming out of Illinois. Have you ever heard this president referring to Trump say one negative thing about white supremacists? These are all things. Uh, none of this was proven in the trial. And Kyle Rittenhouse is saying that the president had actual malice in defaming his character. Is that what happened here? The, the president spoke to the verdict uh, last week. Uh, he has obviously condemned uh, the hatred and division and violence we've seen around the country by groups like the Proud Boys uh, and groups that uh, that individual has posed in photos with. Um, but beyond that, I'll leave it to the comments around the verdict. He hadn't apologized. And what... Uh else is more obvious, it looks like he's not going to apologize. And he did call Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. Just imagine how much money Kyle Rittenhouse is going to make because you can bet lawsuits on the way. Have a great turkey day. We'll see you Friday right back here at TNN Live. It only gets better. I want to thank you so much. I'm very thankful for you being here and a part of this. We don't take you for granted. We'll see you Friday, folks. Think of